This is the 966 episode 98. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello. How are hey, you? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You've had a busy week. Children with fevers and and uh, I've been traveling and with yeah. storms, you know, I, 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 I guess this this tornado warnings were like the most severe since 2013. They, they closed the government, that sort of thing. I couldn't get back. I, could, I was traveling in North Dakota. I, I was trying to get back from Minneapolis and had to spend another night in lovely Minneapolis. <laughs> Which the only fine. thing, the only thing worse than that, Richard, might have been trying to fly into Washington D.C. during that whole day because the storms were quite wild. Um, yeah, tornado warnings here. We didn't see a tornado, but uh, there's a lot of debris everywhere here, so, so it was nasty. So yeah, you're exactly right. So when we caught the next flight out the next day, <clears throat> I was traveling with my my 90 year old mom back to North Dakota for a sort of quasi family reunion, and um, the the gentleman in our row we were chatting and he had they had they had taken off from minneapolis the day before 45 minutes away from dc they turned him around so he had to go back to minneapolis and spend the night even though he was close but he also said he had a had a friend because he was coming in with other members of his company who said the landing that she did get down but the landing was most terrifying thing she'd ever experienced <laughs> yeah no, no thanks also no thanks to getting on a flight flying somewhere and then flying immediately back to your original destination <laughs> yeah. i think it could have been worse and richard i i think about it you use this term i think actually on the air in a previous episode but um with two very young children here and when they get sick it turns my house into a weapons lab i think that is a so bioweapons bioweapons lab yes i <laughs> i uh i now use that phrase uh quite often yes and richard <laughs> this is a bioweapons lab that is located deep in the hijaz mountains in saudi arabia it needs to be very much protected and richard you know what else is deep in the mountains of the hijaz mountain uh range in saudi arabia our data room uh, which is so massive. Uh, and we have an update from our data room, Richard, actually. We've now been downloaded and have regular listeners in over 100 countries, which That's, is awesome. Mabrook that, to you, sir. Mabrook to you. And you said, you know, our, 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 our podcast, you know, provider or you know, the, the back end of it, uh, not the platforms sends these little updates, you know, like these little medallions every now and then. And, and that just, so that just came over the transom. We didn't know it was coming in. And so about hundred, hundred countries is pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. That's a majority of the countries in the world, Richard, actually there are 195, as you know, um, 193. And then the state of Palestine, which we will probably talk about a little bit here. Um, and the Holy see. So, more than uh, a majority of the countries in the in the world have regular listeners with the nine six six. That is wild. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Greatly appreciate it. Great humbling. Mm -hmm. Quite humbling, Richard. Uh, really good week of feedback as well. Um, all over on all the platforms. Like to read some of it um, for our listeners before we get going here. This one is from Wassel M on YouTube. Um, he says, this is the, this is one of the only podcasts that talks about this subject from a holistic point of view, Richard, you have done an amazing job connecting all, a lot of the dots between the policies and its role in regards to the long-term vision. He's talking about the Saudi pro league and our segment on it, even for a big fan of the Saudi pro league, I've gained a lot from listening to this. So thank you guys for that. And I'm hoping that your podcast grows even further as we need more objectivity in today's world. And because you guys deserve it. You guys have definitely gained a fan over here. Well, thank you, Wassel M. It's nice to have you. 
That uh, was thanks for really, that comment. That was really nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Richard, this one was from Trimax responding to a segment we did, I think it was last week, on the Saudi economy. And uh, it sort of ended up with going back and forth with him because he has so many great questions. He's very interested in the subject and he's a loyal listener and has been for a while now. Um, interested in asking about if it's possible to look deeper at the non-oil government income, where they get it. Uh, is the tax base broad enough? Does it scale on people's incomes, et cetera? Um, and we just sort of, I just sort of went back to him with the basic facts. We don't really know too much in the end exactly how much money the government of Saudi Arabia is making from various tax income schemes. You only really get the top level stuff from the Ministry of Finance. But it's interesting because he was asking about income tax. There is no income tax, as you know, Richard, in Saudi Arabia. Um, there is corporate income tax. There is zakat. Um, you know, there are taxes on hydrocarbons and oil. But there isn't like a, if you make so much money per year, the government slices off a part of that for itself. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So just interesting. Um, yeah. It's, so thanks to him for listening yeah, that, and for the comments and stuff. So really cool. That, that might be a good one because they do track the VAT um, income. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of sources that are that's that'd be worth it. And that's a, as we've talked about, Trimax is awesome, but he, he keeps asking these really good questions that answers for it. so we have, we we have to figure out how to be more more proactive and get ahead of somehow get ahead of trimax yeah so he it, it's funny because i actually spent a decent amount of time getting to the bottom of those questions so it's like uh you know <laughs> uh just kind of interesting but like so one thing that i learned was they do break down um i'm trying to get to where the back and forth was because i actually don't have it right in front of me but um just uh yeah, so there was an increase, by the way, in capital gains and profit on income from the Ministry of Finance, 63% year on year, which is actually significant. And that kind of is in line with the general economic activity that's been going on in Saudi Arabia. And they, they break things down, but it's things like other revenues, which increase 20%. So it's hard to really get into it. But Trimax is asking all the right questions is the point of, of sharing this. And, and you can comment on our videos and ask questions to us. And we try to respond to them pretty quickly on YouTube or, or on our uh, podcast platform website. We see it all kind of filters in. So thanks to him for that, which is uh, really helpful. Yeah, it is. So actually, um, we have 20, 21 and 22 in terms of VAT revenue has been about $60 billion mm -hmm. uh, up, you know, when they first started VAT, I think was in 2020 is when they went from five to 15. Yeah. It was in five to 15. So maybe VAT was introduced in 2018, maybe. Yep. Yep. That's right. Uh, the interesting hop is um, 2017. It was roughly 10 billion revenues in terms of, of tax revenue jumped to uh, over 30 billion and in, in 2018 then 29th and it is you know it sort of stepped up little by little um actually yeah so so you know 21 and 22 roughly 60 billion in VAT revenue which is a huge thing this is so this is v, this is revenue it is what it's not like it's incremental it's that's 60 billion dollars you didn't have five years ago six years ago in terms of your your budget Right. And you see it over there. It, 
go to dinner and it's 15% more for VAT. So it makes right. sense that it's coming in. One challenge, Richard, is the Ministry of Finance's website has been fairly slow to load. And I think that might be because people are checking it because they just released this report, which has a lot of the figures. But um, yeah, uh, that was making it a little frustrating because I couldn't really get to the report. But I did include a link to the actual financial report that was released last week in the comments section. And I'll put it in the comments section of this video as well, just so it's handy. It's nice. well-formatted report. So anyway. By the way, you know, for us old hands at this, it's not too long ago where you couldn't, trying to find this info was, uh, you know, needle in a haystack. Yep. It certainly, it was out there maybe. Uh, maybe it might be one point in one place, probably not, but certainly wasn't <clears throat> collated forecast that organized, you know, the, the, the budget, finance, uh, economy you get you can get real numbers now you can get fairly accurate numbers quickly and you couldn't do that 10 years ago yeah great point or or five years ago really it's sort right. of newer that they would do a press release do a, a public statement have it on the website just like a corporation might so yeah that is cool richard let's get going what is your one big thing this week uh, uh my one big thing it's a big topic so my one big thing last week in last week's episode was the Saudi-Israeli normalization buzz. And as I said, it's a big subject, just ongoing, seemingly ever-changing. Um, and really, it's not possible for me, I'm not an expert, to get it all in one go. Anyway, so some number of things prompted me to revisit it this week. So this is one, this is sort of Saudi-Israeli normalization part two. And I wanted to add a few thoughts, actually three thoughts to be specific. And my first thought was actually prompted by a comment from one of our listeners. Um, and it was in response to the title of the One Big Thing segment that you posted, Lucian, on YouTube. And um, the title was Saudi-Israeli Normalization, question mark, what's in it for Saudi Arabia, question mark. And at Khalid uh, Al-Umri, 6566, replied, it, replied, quote, I'd say everything. Partnering with a developed neighboring country, Israel, is much better than what we currently are doing, which is throwing billions into quote, the cause, unquote, uh, and then close, quote, what he said. And the cause, by meaning, he means the Palestinian cause. And and I think if you're looking at this Saudi-Israeli normalization and how things end up, uh, it's an important point. Because um, this normalization discussion is a three-way conversation. It's between Saudi Arabia, the United States, and Israel. The Palestinian Authority is not at the table, probably won't get to the table, but they will probably be politely, you know, uh, you know, apprised of the results, uh, if results ever do come forward. And and I think it's, you know, obviously that's very frustrating for the Palestinians and others, but it's sort of the situation we find themselves in. I think the commenter reflects the reality from many in the Gulf and in Saudi Arabia. I mean, they, they recognize the injustice and the inequity of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. They empathize deeply with humanitarian costs this is imposed for decades. So, you know, their grandparents, their parents today, they've all sort of been very sympathetic and, and, and responsive to this cause, uh, you know, and the humanitarian cost on the Palestinian people. But they also believe, you know, the Palestinian cause, as the commenter mentioned, men mentioned, has been mismanaged and that the current leadership is inflexible, old and out of touch. And, and an interesting article today by Douglas Bloomfield in this Jerusalem Post, and he was talking about normalization. It's a good article. But he talked about the Palestinian Authority and its situation, and he, this is what he says, quote, the Palestinian Authority is weak, 
corrupt and ineffective. Its leader, Mahmoud Abbas, is 87 years old in poor health and in the 18th year of a four-year term and refusing to pick a successor. His maximalist demands on Israel have led many to believe that he is more interested in victimhood than statehood, unquote. Uh, and of course, the Palestinian Authority is at odds with Hamas, which controls Gaza. So, so for many Gulf Arabs, um, the Palestinian cause is close to their hearts, but both the psychological and financial sort of line of credit limit, as it were, is close to being reached. So I think they look at the issue differently. Um, so I think throughout this process, the, the Palestine will probably be the Palestinian Authority and, and as will probably be observers. Uh, and that's sort of what the situation has, you know, has ended up being. Uh, my second thought, and we laughed about this, Lucian, um, is about the constant, quote, constant speculation, unquote, strategy that uh, Dr. Abdulaziz Angashayan mentioned and that the Israelis are employing. And, um, you know, this was a tactic that they use. And, and, and it was kind of timely because this Wednesday of uh, this week, um, that one big thing episode segment came out that you posted on YouTube channel. And that very morning, the Wall Street Journal, no less, obviously, which is an important uh, source of record, headlined an article entitled, quote, Saudis agree with U.S. on path to normalize kingdom's ties with Israel, unquote. I mean, that's a strong statement. Um, and it stated that, quote, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have agreed on the broad contours of a deal for Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel in exchange for concessions to the Palestinians, U.S. security guarantees, and civilian nuclear help, according to U.S. officials. U.S. Official US officials express cautious optimism that in the next nine to 12 months, they can hammer out the finer details of what would be the most momentous Middle East peace deal in a generation, unquote. So this is not the first time that I wondered if I do, in fact, know nothing. Um, so that was in the morning, Wall Street Journal article. Uh, by the evening, both the White House and the U.S. National Security Council had publicly stated that this was not accurate. John Kirby of the NSC said, quote, quite frankly, just to be blunt here, I think the reporting has left some people with the impression that their discussions are farther along and closer to some sense of certainty than they actually are. The bottom line is there's no agreed to set of negotiations. There's no agreed to framework to codify normalization or any of the other security considerations that we and our friends have in the region, unquote. Um, so for, for us, I, I think you might agree here too, Lucian, the only real takeaway here is that both of these things are probably true. You know, a framework is being discussed and it is far, far away from a potential agreement at this point. So that's thought number two. The constant speculation continues. Um, final thought, number three. Uh, and in the last segment, we talked about negotiating tactics and how it makes sense for Saudi Arabia to engage with the U.S. to see what is possible. Um, Lauren Rosen who writes for The Diplomatic and is somebody that I find to be well-sourced, credible, and responsible, uh, wrote recently, and this is a long quote, so bear with me. Some White House officials believe that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has made a strategic decision to go for Israel, Israel normalization while Biden is in office, mainly because he understands that he only gets what he wants with a Democratic president, a Saudi export source, speaking not for attribution, said in an interview, this was August 4th, the interview, Quote, U.S. officials say now that he's bought into it. The goal is to try and get a deal done by the first quarter of 2024. This is still Laura Rosen talking, writing. While Biden himself was apparently not yet sold on the prospective deal, U.S. and Saudi sources said there had been progress in talks last week between Jake Sullivan, 
and uh, the MBS team. Uh, a Saudi expert source against Laura Rosen said Sullivan returned from the meeting, uh, the that meeting in, in in Jeddah, July 27th, with the framework was what would be the U.S. elements of such a normalization deal. Normalization deal. These four elements are a security guarantee for Saudi Arabia, and this is in parentheses, not a NATO type Article Five treaty pact, but something described as a quote major non-NATO ally plus plus unquote agreement. The second element is nuclear tech. Third is reliability on U.S. weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. The fourth element involves China, with the U.S. seeking firewalls between the U.S. and China military technology employed by Saudi Arabia. All right, so that's the end of what Laura Rosen had, had written this week. Ali Shahabi, who we know, smart, plugged-in Saudi analyst, recently commented that, quote, U.S.-Saudi ties have warmed unquestionably in recent months, unquote. And that the U.S.-Saudi dialogue has, quote, gotten much more extensive and friendly. And this subject, the subject of normalization, is driving that, unquote, driving that increased warmth and, uh, and dialogue. And, and my response to this is, from a negotiation point of view, is exactly. From the Saudi perspective, normalization with Israel may or may not make sense at this time. What has been put on the table by the U.S., by the United States, is now on the table. You know, these topics, all of them have been discussed, debated, considered, accepted, declined, whatever. They're now part of the dialogue. In addition, all the players at the table have gotten to know each other better. You know, they come to better understand priorities, come to better understand limits. And, and so essentially, you know, these good faith negotiations, good faith negotiations anywhere are usually a win for all involved. Certainly this is good for Saudi Arabia, regardless of the outcome. Um, so that's the one big thing. Those are the three additional points I thought were worth making. One, where you know where and why Palestine is in the situation it is in. Uh, two, you know the the very you know the, the immediate case study of the um, constant speculation. You know, a Wall Street Journal uh, headline in the morning and a and a, and a re rebuttal from the White House in the evening, and then the value of negotiations just as a process. You know, just in sort of putting things on the table that weren't there before. So this is a fascinating thing. It, it merits certainly more than two episodes, but it also probably merits people smarter than me. But it, it's really an interesting time for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, this, so many thoughts on that. First is regarding the, just as I, before I kind of get into it, it's worth noting that the headlines on these YouTube videos and in the Chirons you see if you're watching on YouTube and in the write-ups on all the um, podcasts, like wherever we publish it, there's a bunch of written information. And usually the point is to include a, a link to the timestamp so people can jump around if, if easier, if you want to get to the interview or whatever. Um, those don't like perfectly reflect the actual segment per se. 100%. Um, and in some ways they're meant, you, and you know this, Richard, but in some ways they're meant to, well, so first of all, there are constraints on how long you can make those. Yeah. And then there's, um, you know, sometimes you try to put things in a different light so that it can maybe attract more viewers or attract a more of a casual listener, uh, or I guess viewer on YouTube. But so just as, as a heads up, just to uh, put that out there, the question that I, I put in that headline and I was like, you know what, this is covered in this pod in this segment, but there's a lot more to it. And actually, because we didn't 
perfectly describe what was in that segment. I feel like we got a lot more comments of people being like, well, Richard was really spot on here with this. So well, just to know that as well. Yeah. But I mean, read the, read the headline, Saudi Israeli normalization, question mark. What's in it for Saudi Arabia, question mark. I mean, that's spot on. That's exactly what everything is talking about. I mean, there's, that's not misleading at all. It's just that the topic, you know, triggers so much. Yes. Yep. And that was the point of, of your one big thing last week. And I think, so as you were speaking, it made me think of the trade offer meme. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's just like some dude going like this and it just says trade offer. And then people put whatever they want in there. This is the trade offer of all trade offers involving many parties with many different things. And Richard, as you know, in sports, you have straight up trades for two players. You have two players uh, for each other. You have players for future draft picks for consideration for trades. cash. You have three-way trades. Those yeah. are the hardest to pull off, multi-team trades. Yeah. This is a multi-team trade with players and future considerations and draft picks all in one. Really, really would be amazing if this came together. Just to add to what you said as well, that the, the Wall Street Journal headline wasn't incorrect, but they have Correct. now what they have the what they want to put on the table, which is what you sort of discussed here. But getting there is not easy. There is so much meat left on the bone for just in the Palestinian issue in the talks. And then you had BB sort of blow that up this week by speaking to Bloomberg, saying it comes up a lot less than you think. It's sort of a checkbox. You have to check it to say that you're doing it. I don't know if that's helpful. He's sort of in this way giving away a little bit, you know, of the of the value of the deal. He's snacking before a big meal. And so it's makes it a little bit less pressure on him at home. Chip, you mentioned this. You have the US Congress. They're going to try to sidestep that with an executive security deal between the US and Saudi Arabia. But you have the Israeli population and the Israeli government that has to agree to some sort of big deal with the Palestinian people. Don't know if Netanyahu is the guy that's going to make that happen. There just is so much going on here. And I think that your, your, not your, but just the thesis that there's progress. People are talking. This is good. People are saying what they want out of this deal. That's also positive. But like, are we going to get the deal in 2024? You know, should you take away from that headline that this is going to happen? I don't think so. No, 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 100%. That's why I said at the, you know, end of, you know, closing off the second thing is, and in fact, both these things are true. They are discussing a framework. It's just, you know, it's not imminent. And, um, and you know, and, and, and that's the thing when you look at, when you see it as a process negotiating play, you see BB talking like this. And, and that's classic negotiating. You know, we don't really want it that much. You know, mm -hmm. we're, you know, it's not a big deal to us, which is ridiculous. I mean, this would be the holy great, I mean, that's the wrong term. <laughs> this would be this would be such a win for israel and of course they think they can achieve it without giving up much at all as a matter of fact they think they can get, achieve it without giving out any more than they gave up for the uae and the and the bahrain abraham of course and in fact they may get it but boy you, you know they want it desperately they it would mean the world to them and so you know that's part of it play down like you don't care i mean it's it's you know it's never any but and, and what i I'd still believe you know at, at the, the 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 nexus of all this is the united states you know think about it and this is the thing that i'm you know first made clear to me when we we're talking with dr abdulaziz is like because he's he's pretty lucid on this very lucid on this you know the saudi 
Saudi and Israel are negotiating U.S. assets, U.S. money, U.S. prestige, U.S. concessions, U.S. military, all these things. So, I mean, you know, we're with a bank, with a guarantor, with a we're everything on this. And in return, neither one of them, I don't think, is going to give up very much. I mean, Saudi Arabia is, you know, Saudi Arabia is certainly not going to, you know, may curtail some uh, security and defense interaction with China and Russia. We're not going to give up real relations or economic relations, certainly with the East or China. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, you, the U.S. has to be smart. It could be giving, giving up a lot for not, uh, for not much. And, um, but by the same token, it sort of reinforces the U.S. place in the world. Only the U.S. could do this. Only the U.S. has assets to do this. And, um, you know, so, you know, it, it, as, we, as this progresses, I'd like for everybody to come out with something that's valuable and tangible and sustainable, and mostly the U.S. because I'm an American citizen. We saw a lot of after the Saudi-Iranian deal that the days of the U.S. being a power broker in the Middle East are over. It's China's Middle East now. You don't see China anywhere near this other than in U.S. demands for Saudi Arabia to maybe not allow them to have military bases in the kingdom, get a little bit away from Huawei tech, et cetera. You don't have China coming in there saying, hey, like if you broker this deal, we'll give you a security pact with China. China would never do that. So there's just it just Richard, this whole region is changing so quickly. And yet this issue seems like there's a lot of progress being made in the discussions and in the framework and setting things up, but nothing has really changed except for the very, very slow hush-hush issue by issue improvement in Saudi-Israeli relations that no one wants to talk about. True. Just and, a really and, interesting time. And it is, and, and, but it also the socialization of the topic is important. You know, this yep. is what I mean when things on the table, a socialization in the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the U.S., socialization of, of nuclear tech uh, cooperation, the, you know, of, of, of better access to, to top line security and military apparatuses and material, um, you know, a security pack of some sort, you know, these are on the table and you socialize, you talk about it, you talk about them, you give here, you take there, you give there, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a completely different spot about what you think is okay to do. And that's the beauty of it from Saudi's perspective. Yeah. Why wouldn't they put these out there, make their asks clear? demonstrate uh, interest in talking about these things. We've, we've included a lot on this in our newsletter this week and last week as well about U.S.-Saudi relations improving. And part of that is because they're talking about mutual interest, areas of mutual interest. And that's exactly what Ali Shahabi said, you know, yep. because this ongoing discussion puts these people, puts, puts key people in the same room talking about how they can work together with cheap, cheap, a, 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 um, a goal that they, they both sides deem worthy, you know, you, that's not, that wasn't happening 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. And also Jake Sullivan was just in Jeddah for the Ukraine peace summit talks that Saudi Arabia hosted. So there was big some deal. collab there, which, which is would, it's a know, big deal. Yeah. And that actually did that, did you, you, you know, you're foreshadowing two yellows. One way you want to talk about that thing, but also we're also going to talk about security in the Gulf. Another thing only the U.S. can do. So, That's right. I mean, we have, we have um, this is a well thought out agenda here at the 966. Well, Richard, you mentioned Lucid because you were discussing 
uh, lucid piece from Dr. Abdulaziz al Kashayan. My one big thing this week, if you're ready to move on. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Okay, my Please. one big thing this week. Bear me. We talk <laughs> about this somewhat regularly on the 966. Lucid Motors just announced its second quarter financial results. This was earlier this week on an earnings call, provided some updates and details on its plans for the road ahead. CEO Peter Rawlinson led the call with figures from the second quarter 2023. Rawlinson also is CTO of the company and uh, as many know, was chief engineer of the Tesla Model S and he left Tesla to, to start Lucid. So let's just list out, out everything we learned on this call. We'll start with the financial results first and then discuss the latest news and plans announced by the CEO. First on numbers, the company reported second quarter earnings and revenue below market expectations. In the second quarter, Lucid recorded revenue of $150.9 million. The company ended second quarter with total liquidity of $6.25 billion, which is a lot of money, uh, and is expected to be sufficient liquidity to get through the start of production of the Gravity SUV, which we must interject now. It looks so cool, and we'll, I'm going to come right back to that in a second, uh, into 2025. So they have enough money, is the point. Cash stood at $2.78 billion at the end of June compared with $900 million three months prior. Of course, that's due to the fact that in May, Lucid announced its latest capital raise of $3 billion with a public offering of common stock corresponding uh, and a corresponding investment by the PIF. It was actually an affiliate of the PIF. Uh, third IR company, I believe is the name. Anyway, it was the PIF. Uh, and that transaction closed in June. The company said it will have a capex of approximately $1.1 to $1.3 billion in 2023. So they're building. We also got an update on the PIF ownership of Lucid, which was 60.2% ownership. And Lucid in a sort of briefing booklet that they put out, which is available on their website, that was really well produced, actually really good graphics, a lot of imagery in there. Hopefully we can include some of it on this segment because there's some new looks at the Galaxy, you don't get like the full look of the car, but you kind of see it from behind. So anyway, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, we now know that 60.2% of the company is owned by the PIF and the PIF has invested $5.4 billion into the company since 2018. And that's, the company says that shows a track record of support. Indeed it does, that's a lot of commitment. The company says it will make more than 10,000 vehicles this year. For reference, that does seem a little low. I did a little poking around looking at EV startups, EV first and only startups. Fisker will make between 20 to 23,000 vehicles. Rivian is going to make about 50,000. Polestar uh, says it will make about 60 to 70,000 EVs. So it's behind those EV only startups, not that far behind. It's not like it's getting blown away. Everyone is behind Tesla by a lot, which is not news. Tesla said it would make around 2.1 million vehicles this year. Okay, so that's sort of the financial picture and a little bit about what they're doing. On to the news and announcements here. And again, I hope to include some of this in the video production, but the company released some imagery and, and the Galaxy, you can now see from behind, you, sh you get to see Rawlinson like kind of behind the vehicle, but they're purposefully not showing the whole thing. Um, they'll be doing some road testing phases uh, this year. And then they said by 2024, the Lucid Gravity. I've, I've been saying Gravity. It, it, I've been saying Galaxy. I think it's Gravity is the SUV. Right. Yeah. Okay. So apologies. No um, but, the, but the Gravity will be available next year. 
uh, at the end of next year, they said they'll start selling them. So it's going to be a little while until we get to see that on the road. The Lucid Air Pure will be available in higher volumes in the second half of this year. And the Lucid Air Sapphire will begin uh, production anytime. They said summer 2023. We're in August now, so we're running a little low on time there. But on Saudi Arabia, the company is moving forward with work on a plant in the kingdom. It's first outside its main plant in the United States. Lucid's core EV tech is created in-house and manufactured at Lucid's facility in Arizona, where the company produces its own electric motors, transmission systems, power, electronic inverters, the revolutionary Wonderbox, racing-derived battery packs. It's sort of doing it all at its, at its company in Arizona. So what they're going to be doing in Saudi Arabia is building a facility that will then assemble Lucid vehicles that are made in parts in Arizona. They'll be shipped over to Saudi Arabia. And at its peak, Lucid expects to manufacture up to 155,000 vehicles per year at that facility in Saudi Arabia. That'll be located at the King Abdullah Economic City, sort of near Jeddah. So they're going to start doing this, Richard, at the end of this month, at September 2023, really beginning of next month, anytime next month, it's what they said. But they're going to ship elements of the car to Saudi Arabia. They will start assembling them in Saudi Arabia. And I just thought that this was really interesting because we're getting, we, we've been sort of on top of this uh, in part because we think the cars are cool and because it's a really interesting story with Saudi Arabia backing an EV automaker and wanting them to be made in Saudi Arabia as the world's largest oil producer. So it's sort of interesting. Uh, CEO Peter Rawlinson said, we are not limited by our ability to man- manufacture. Most of the supply chain has now come throughout COVID area is figured out. We are limited by our ability to sell the cars right now. And that's my key focus, he said. So really what we're looking at now is they've got a ton of money. They're making cars. They're not making enough cars right now to really see any sort of profitability, but also to compete in any way with Tesla. And I don't think that's realistic. The cars are more expensive. They did drop the price, I think of the Lucid Air by a little bit to make it a little bit more affordable. 82,000. 82,000, which is still- Still nowhere near my budget. No, that's still pretty high. That is not anywhere close to, uh, you know, Tesla's model and some other EV producers' models. But this is really the point that I want to make with that, Richard, is that if the car is actually that much nicer, and from what you can see, it looks really, really nice. You drove one and Mm -hmm. the, is it Galaxy? Do I keep messing this up? It's Galaxy, right? Gravity. It's the gravity. gravity. For the SUV. I haven't driven that gravity, but the, yeah, I, I drove a Lucid Air. That's, see, if these cars are actually way nicer and they're just the luxury version of Tesla, that could be a very, very good separator for the company. They have cash. I don't think Polestar or Rivian have the same sort of state investment fund backing and, and sort of guarantor that they have. Um, Lucid can be a loss leader for a long time, potentially outlasting some of its peers. So if they're in the market for a while, what is the deciding factor when you're buying a car? Is it quality of car? Is it price? If Lucid's cars are just that much nicer, have that much more range, are the luxury version of Tesla, I could see a place for it in the marketplace. And I can see it outlasting some of its peers that may not get there because they can't possibly sell cars fast enough. So just sort of a pretty good update from Lucid on where they are. You know, we got the numbers and everything and they weren't impressive, but I guess 
One figure that was impressive was how much cash they have on hand now with their recent raise, the backing of the Saudi government, the fact that they will be starting to assemble these cars in Saudi Arabia, which is really good news both for Saudi Arabia and for Lucid. Seems like they're in a decent position here. They just got to start getting these cars out into the marketplace. And I think that's going to be the focus here over the next year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months and how they end up doing before the end of the year. If they hit that 10,000 car figure, just an interesting time. Again, we welcome anyone from Lucid to not just come on the show, of course, but provide us with Lucid so that we may test them ourselves and drive them because that would be awesome. There is one, as I mentioned, (laughs) Richard, out here near me that I see all the time and it looks so cool. And again, if it's a really nice, if it's the Mercedes to Tesla's Toyota Camry, I can see there being a market for these eventually. I love that. And that was really informative and it's good to get a sort of a catch up on this. And you, you look at, first of all, it's nice that that Lucid Air price came down, but they also yeah. came out with the Lucid uh, Air Sapphire, the $249,000 version, which goes zero to 60 in 1.8 times <laughs> seconds. What <are> you- <laughs> Everyone <laughs> needs that. <laughs> you know, if one of your kids wasn't buckled in, they'd be plastered up against the rear window. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is fast. Oh, my goodness. That's insane. And um, I, it's just really curious to me. There's so many interesting things. Because you look at Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, look at this. All right, so let's take this investment. This is a big investment. And, and you know, a $5.4 billion investment is the understatement of the year for Lucid to say. I don't know what they said. They, they've been they've been strong supporters. I don't know. I mean, they're superstar supporters. Um, and it gives Lucid, you know, a, a, a cushion that, uh, you know, most most any or any sort of corporation rarely has. Um, but you look at it from a Saudi perspective, I, 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 I guess I'm really fascinated. I'll get to the question at the end, the wonder at the end. You know, it makes sense technologically, investment. You know, and th- this is cutting edge EV stuff. This is leading EV stuff. It makes sense industrially in terms of building a, a sector, an automotive sector. Um, you know, it makes sense in terms of upskilling population, employment, all sorts of things. And it might make sense from a veteran's perspective. And on top of that, we think the car is beautiful. But the problem is, the thing I can't get, you know, that sort of stumps me is Peter Rawlson said it himself. These are no longer supply chain issues. People just aren't buying this car. And um, I, I don't know if it's the price point or, or what it is, because by, you know, every, every, almost uniformly, and I can't, I have not read a negative review of this vehicle. And most of them are over the top in terms of praise. Uh, yet, you know, they sold 10,000 this year. That's just not a lot. It's not enough. It's not nearly enough. Um, so I don't know how they're going to solve this problem because it's something's missing uh, in terms of either its market strategy, its positioning. It's, I don't know because you and I both look at this and go, oh, my goodness, and we drool. Uh, but you know, apparently we're in a fairly small minority. Yeah. Just a slight correction there, Richard, they haven't sold 10,000 this year. They're going to make 10,000. Um, that's the goal, but that's, again, that's low. And so your point stands, but you're right. I mean, if the car is really awesome and, and, and in this, 
sort of like promotional document and we're going to put a link to it because it's publicly available information. It does have some really badass photos of the lucid, just like really high res photographs. And then a lot of actually really good um, financial information from the, from this recent release, but page, what is this page 26 of 29 it's awards and accolades winner 2023 world car awards for the best luxury car. Newsweek 2023 world's greatest auto disruptors powertrain disruptor award Bloomberg green ranked number one and six of the top seven overall green EV ratings US News and World Report best luxury electric car 2023 car and driver money auto trader people not not people reviewers and auto experts love the car how do you get people to love it is it just make it less expensive? People are still, there are still very wealthy people buying cars that cost at least that much. A new uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, at least not the newest one because they're kind of changing everything about it, but a new Toyota Land Cruiser was like 90,000 bucks in the mm-hmm. US. That's more than a Lucid. People are not, are, are willing to spend that much for a car. Right. Again, not us, we're, but we're willing to take a free car. Absolutely. But people are, people are willing to, to do that. So how do you get them to do it? How do you get people to drive it and feel it and see it and want it? Maybe it just takes time. And that's something they can afford because they have PIF backing. A hundred percent. And so, by the way, PAF is not putting all its eggs in the lucid basket. I mean, they, 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 they have a, a five, $0.6 billion with Human Horizons, which is a Chinese electric vehicle. They've got a huge commitment with SEER. SEER, yeah. A number of other uh, EV investments, all trying to build this this automotive ecosystem, particularly electric vehicle ecosystem. And so, so, um, but both those guys, you know, the, the Human Horizons and SEER are more sort of mainstream, uh, affordable. Uh, you know, the the... The loose is definitely a luxury play. And look, we know about the Saudis love a luxury play. A lot of their tourism, especially in the new places, is luxury. That's what they lead with luxury. Yeah. And they, you know, they get some uh, you know, trendsetters and and influencers and and then they move on down the the spectrum in terms of affordability. Uh so it, it you know, but they're covering the whole range of it. But yeah, this is fascinating to me. I, I you know, and I, you know, I'm not saying my tastes go with everybody, but both of us think it's a gorgeous car. Both of us see that it's a well-made car but it's it's got to sell better yeah i have a buddy that's in the ev space and i was talking with him about this last night and he just said they have to follow the exact playbook as tesla if they want to be anywhere close expensive car slightly less expensive car and then a Mm -hmm. really affordable car for the masses and then to have to scale production of that which is insanely hard Mm -hmm. and build like 10 factories all, all over the world so i mean that there's one factory now in Saudi Arabia yeah. and the fact that the playbook exists and the market is different. There is demand for these EVs now and increasingly will be the case that there will be demand seems possible. And yeah. again, like if they're, if they're able to be the loss leader for a while and get everything figured out, you could see it working out. It would be so cool if there was the lucid air light in 2026, that is more in our price range, Richard, that would be cool. But I think we'll I think I think we gotta wait till the lucid smog comes out. We'll be able to afford that. <laughs> I think that's a I think that'll be a pedaling that'll be a, a pedaling EV. 
It'll yeah. Be, you know, like we charge it with our manpower. It's got the little solar panel on top and it goes like 15 miles an hour. And I'll put a little 966 <laughs> sticker on it. Oh, for, that's for, for and the lucid smog. It actually generates more pollution. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's funny, Richard. Let's now get to our incredible conversation with Better All Safe. Just a fantastic one. This was this was great, and and this is what reminds us, Lucian. You you went to a, we both went to highly rated colleges, undergraduates. We both have graduate degrees. And neither one of us considers ourselves experts. And this is because w- when we get to speak with people like Butter, I'll safe. I mean, yeah. it was really great. He's from the region. He's a scholar, but you know, he he's deep into the the subject matter, has really good insights. Um, this is an expert. Well said. I completely agree with that. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome onto the 966, Dr. Bader El Saif, founding president at El Saif Consulting and assistant professor at Kuwait University, a visiting researcher at Georgetown University, where he completed his PhD in history. Bader is also a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Dr. Bader, welcome to the 966. Thank you, Lucin. Happy to be here. Hi, Butter. How are you doing? It's great to have you. We, 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 we talked about this for a little bit, uh, about getting you on the show. And we did, we did. I'm glad we made it happen. Well, we're excited because we like we like to feature a lot of different folks on the 966. We especially like to feature young uh, scholars from the region, uh, which you certainly are. Um, but, but and 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 I'll foreshadow. Really, uh, Butter posted really a terrific thread on Twitter now X back in early June just about Saudi Arabia in general it had it was really rich had a lot of good uh thoughts and insights and I reached out to him and said hey let's talk about this in 966 so we're we're going to do that but before we do that can you tell us a little bit about yourself your your academic pedigree is incredible i mean you you know obviously you you got your doctorate from from Georgetown um, in philosophy, but you also have a master's degree from Harvard in education and theology. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Look, none of this was planned. Uh, sometimes when I look back, I think, I, you know, I was meant to live in the age of the Renaissance probably, or have some family like the Medici sponsor me, and then I just go off with my own educational pursuits. It was inquiry just guided my search, guided my path, my educational path. I started at Boston College uh, with politics and history. And from there on, you know, the plan was if you're good in grades, you either go into medical school or law school. So the plan for me was to go into law school. But my home country, Kuwait, didn't accept U.S. law schools as equivalent to a law degree at the time. They do right now. So I had to let go of that dream of doing a law school in the U.S., although I, I got into Colombia, but that didn't happen. So I ended up doing law in London. I went to SOAS. And after that experience, I, I did work a bit in, in the law field, in the legal field, and it didn't excite me as much. I mean, you know, you, you get your facts right, your writing standardized, your thinking and logic sharpened, but it felt, you know, kind of tedious to me. So I had some passion for understanding how people are driven, what their behaviors uh, move them around with. And, and religion was always center to that understanding, whether I was in the U.S. back in the day when I was a student or living uh, in the Middle East and, and across the world. I mean, my dad was in the diplomatic corps. So 
you know, I saw the, the Harvard Divinity School offering for theology, and I'm like, you know what, let me let me check it out. <laughs> and to the surprise of many, let me tell you, back in the time, they were like, what are you going to do with a theology degree? Are you going to be an imam in a masjid? That's not going to work. <laughs> so I ignored all of that. I went in. I loved it. You know, I, I, I focused on Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, it was it was great. I had I looked at the texts. I looked at different theologies, the way that they've evolved. And during my work, actually, in Harvard Divinity, I worked on religious education. And I looked at Saudi textbooks, by the way. So Saudi is, is a recurring theme here. And when my professors saw how I've done all this work from a theological perspective, they actually offered me to apply to the education school and that they would sponsor me like in a financial aid kind of thing, if I get in, obviously, which I did. And that's what I that's what took me to education, which I equally enjoyed, by the way. So um, when I finished all of this, I went back because, you know, I'm only a Kuwaiti citizen. I don't have a U.S. passport. So I went back to Kuwait. And guess what? I couldn't find anything that specifically met the demands of my fields. So I joined the oil and gas sector. <laughs> and, and everyone was shocked that I did that to myself. But I thought, you know, Kuwait and the Gulf is oil rich. This is a conversation or a space that I'd like to be conversant in. So I went in. I worked in Agility, which has various branches in the U.S. It's a multinational now. I started only as a manager. Uh, you know, they gave me, they told me I can be in the M&A team, the legal team, but I, I chose oil and gas. And the plan was always, I'll do this for a couple of years, uh, you know, save up some money and then start my own boutique consultancy shop. I surprised myself. Instead of doing a year or two, I stayed for a couple of years I was getting promoted. I didn't know that I would do well uh, with business and money, uh, which is, you know, good to know. So I left after five years, around five years, as senior vice president of the oil and gas sector. So I led the team that I joined as its junior member. And by the way, I was the only Kuwaiti at that level of a senior VP. The others were either oh. or uh, Americans. I started my own consultancy at the time. And then I joined ranks with the Tony Blair Group the UK. They were doing some development gigs across the Gulf. Uh, our government took notice of me. They ta asked me to join in. I did as a deputy chief of staff to the prime minister at the time. I did that for two years. And then, you know, the whole education thing about being in academia, about being a professor has always been in the back of my mind. So I decided to stop shop when it comes to work and then move on with the education component. And I finished my PhD in history, actually, to PhD in history. Um, and I returned to Kuwait University. And now I'm combining both worlds, the consulting and the educational. So that's that's me in a few sentences. <laughs> that's ex that's extraordinary. That really is. Um, and, you know, I guess I guess, uh, you know, pursuing your love and your, you know, your passions has gotten you to a very interesting place. So you're you're as you say, you're a renaissance man. Uh, I'd like to think of myself as one. I hope so. I mean, our breed is going extinct. Uh, think of the opportunities and uh, that would happen to people who pursue their passion. And I say this to my students in Kuwait University, and I say to everyone, do not go for any type of pressure. Don't let any pressure push you. Pursue what you love, and you'll find your way through. Things will come up together. I wouldn't have thought you know, that I would pursue that journey that I did. But, you know, I just did. I let go. 
and it came about this way. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, and thanks, thankfully, I brought you here today with us on the 966. Um, and you have been commenting more, it seems, on uh, the region, politics, diplomacy, uh, a variety of issues. And so let's turn to this Twitter thread. And it, it sounds light, you know, but it really isn't. You were talking about um, his conversations about Saudi Arabia's diplomatic steps, Vision 2030, a whole number of things. And you laid out a number of really interesting thoughts. So we're going to, like I said, you've made it very easy. I'm really going to just sort of read some of, you know, the opening line to your your thoughts and, and, and let you go with it. Um, so specifically with regard to Vision 2030, you, 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 you stated Saudi Arabia has gone through several waves of hyperdevelopment, social transformations, and power projection. This current wave fits into this long series, uh, even if it's outpacing itself, exclamation point. Um, uh, can you elaborate on that? Let me start. I mean, thanks for allowing me the space and time to elaborate. Twitter has its limitations. And, you know, if yeah. you, you can't yeah. fit it into 140 characters, then, you know, you get uh, stuck. Uh, let me start with the whole positionality of things. Uh, I am from the region. I come from the region. And I'm, I am I enjoy the attention that the region has had, that has it has always had, you know, previous decades. But that attention has to be coupled with a genuine interest in the region. And by genuine, I mean knowing the region inside out, trying to skim through developments through one's own positioning and lens will not do it. So for example, if I'm um, a Chinese uh, analyst living in China and having China guide my interests or my way of looking at things when looking into the Gulf region or juxtaposing it on the region, same thing with the American field. That sometimes curtails one's understanding of the region as is. And that exchange between people from the region with people from other regions is very healthy. And those different viewpoints are needed. But sometimes I feel that the viewpoints from the region are eclipsed. They're not taken seriously. Uh, we're, we're, we're reduced to, you know, those persons who are filthy rich, you know, that stereotype that comes across, who are not aware of global dynamics, they're not citizens of the world, they need to be coached sometimes. Again, it's not across the board, but you see this a lot. And, and a lot of the coverage, specifically on Saudi Arabia, fits into that mold, unfortunately. It's very uh, mesmerized in the moment. So when they try to analyze Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, you name it, they look at it with a presentist lens, which is always healthy. But the historian in me, and I think any sound policymaker, needs to factor in that what you see today in 2023 is always a cumulative process of learning, of development, of generational change. So to look at events in isolation is not a helpful lens. So that's the rationale for putting out this uh, thread. Uh, many have been raising their eyebrows in terms of, oh, Saudi this, Saudi that. This is unprecedented. This is new. This is transformative. This has happened in various ways in the past. So let me go to the thread. Like you said, I mean, from the get-go, we're now let's let's stick to the 20th century. I'm not going to go 
I mean, we're talking the third Saudi state. If I go to the first and second, we'll spend a few hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll not go there. Although I think it would be fascinating. So we may, maybe offline, I, I mean, it would be very fascinating. But anyway, please. Sure. So the, the third Saudi state was founded in 1932. So we, we celebrated close to 90 years last September. Right after its founding, and by founding, I mean the reunification of various parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Such a reunification, when put across history, is a major achievement because it's been centuries since that unification has been in place. And why is that a positive development? It reduces conflict. It reduces a lot of the strife that was going on over resources at the time. As you know, one of the poorest spaces in the world at the time. So come 1932, the announcement of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, a year later, the Saudis agree on a concession agreement with the Southern California oil company, SoCal. And they begin, they create a subsidiary, the California Arabia, Arabian oil company, I think. And they go ahead and they find oil in 1938. So it's not the process of finding the oil or, by the way, the development of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, the TAP line, which is which at the time in 1950, when it was completed, it was the longest pipeline mm -hmm. in the world. And it connected the Gulf to the Mediterranean. So why do I mention these developments? Those were not done without Saudi hands, without Saudi minds, without the sweat and tears of people on the ground. So to try to make it an abstract exercise in which Americans came in, they did everything on their own, they brought in their own people, it's, that's too reductionist. And that wasn't the case. So the amount of development that took place and the amount of agency that Saudis had in their hands, and by agency, I mean sometimes they were not happy with their salaries, sometimes they protested the, uh, the, uh, the company, sometimes they stood up for their own rights and they sometimes won, sometimes they did not. All of that helped develop a Saudi citizenry. So that's, to me, that's a very major wave that doesn't get talked about when speaking about Saudi today. A second wave, and I'm trying to go chronological, I think, I think the thread goes into the 1950s and 60s. And let me pause because, again, this whole women's empowerment discourse that we hear today, and they think it's born out of the moment. There was a long history and legacy uh, and fights, you know, I mean, to get this through. Women didn't have the right to education. The first school came in 1965. And that took a lot of, you know, exercising, a lot of massaging with the religious clerical uh, authority who did not see that this is something that's fit, but the leadership went ahead with it. And, you know, the rest is history. It's developed ever since. The abolishment of slavery happened in 1962, only within 30 years of establishing the kingdom. And again, to try to compare it to the U.S. scene or to other places would be a bit misguided because the legacy of history is different, uh, of slavery is different in, in the region. And they moved on. Now, mind you, we have issues like everywhere else. I mean, you guys in the U.S. with Mexico and we have migrant workers. So it's not to say that the issues do not exist today. But the whole notion of trying to move ahead, trying to progress, that has always been there. 
And that's also another major shift. A third one, let me throw in that as well. In 1960, I think women's education was 1960, by the way. Let me correct myself. Women's education was 60, abolishment of slavery, 62. And the 65 date was the introduction of television. Because even then, there was a lot of objection to bringing in technology. Some felt that this was copying the West. Some felt that this was something that would corrupt the society. But the leadership and the elites around the leadership pushed their way forward. There's a funny anecdote on that end, and I don't know how accurate it is. But when when they went ahead to the king at the time, King Faisal, to try and, you know, dissuade him from going ahead with his decisions, he asked his guards to move away their cars. So when they leave the palace, they have no cars to leave with. So they went down and they're like, where are our cars? They came up and then he told them, okay, if you do not want any technology, then we should also let go of the cars that brought you into here. So <laughs> you see the given back and forth, the back and forth that goes into developing society. Aramco is another situation. We're talking from a, a joint venture to the Saudis eventually buying into the company in 1973, a 25% stake. Right after the war in 74, they increased it to 60%. And in 1980, they nationalized the whole industry. Do you know that Aramco's headquarters was in New York until 1952? Hmm. It just moved to Saudi in 52. So all of these small steps come with a lot of processes, a lot of learning curves, a lot of developments. Uh, Aramco today is listed, as you know. There is that movement now to green energy, to green hydrogen, to clean energy. So there is always that motion of progress. So again, the whole theme of trying to stick us into one space, one spot, would be inaccurate. Uh, and let me end this whole wave with the last wave that I saw uh, happening or unfolding in front of us is what I term with the early 2000s. And that's the social liberalization agenda that King, the late King Abdullah and the governments then pushed forward. Some people, and again, I'm thinking American, think that this only happened because of US pressure due to 9-11 and all the things that came about. But let me remind you, the Saudis had the Khubar bombings in 03. They had a lot of terrorist attacks. So they had their own local incentives to also modify the religious discourse to open up. They had a series of national dialogues in 03, 04, 05. They were thematic. One was about women, one was about religion, one was about society and youth. So all of this coupled with a signature scholarship program that started in 2005 that sent thousands of Saudis abroad, really opened up and shook society from within and through coming from the outside. So all of this led to the moment that we're in now. It can't be seen as a spur of the moment, uh, emotional kind of reaction that the leadership and people and society have pushed forward towards. Just a, a wonderful recap, and I think something that Lucia and I are probably familiar with, but you know, you have to be deep in the weeds to really get that sense. And I couldn't agree more about trying to get the view from the region. And you referenced two leaders, King Faisal and King Abdullah, both of whom um, actually were known to be very traditional, 
very close to the clerical class, um, but also were amazingly progressive in their own way and in a way that was um, organic and authentic to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, speaking to what you're talking about, that these changes were ongoing, they, they, they were achieved and, they, and progress was achieved, but in a way that's consistent with the society and what the society wants to see. So you bring us up to modern day and in and, and your second point, your thread is you specifically say King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman are operating from an existing manual. And you quote, they fine tune the interplay between domestic, regional and global elements. Um, so again, it's building on this wonderful primer on, on Saudi social change and, and, uh, you know, historical themes. How have King Salman and, and Mohammed bin Salman built on this sort of playbook? So let's go to King Salman, because I think he tends to be, uh, not credited as much to much of the changes here. And I think we always have to start with King Salman. He has been a, a main pillar of Saudi state building since uh, the, his rise as the Prince of Riyadh back uh, in, in the day. And we're talking over five decades. And he has the persona, the drive, the character to drive major change forward. If you ask anyone in Saudi Arabia from the Al Sauds or others who have dealt with him, know that his firmness and perseverance in achieving the goals is something that's, you know, admirable. That's something that people look up to when they're moving forward on. And that's what pushed or opened the space for MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, to move forward. None of these achievements can go in that pace and push without the blessing and the knowledge and the push of King Salman himself. And when I talk about a manual, I'm talking about the delicate balance. Um, you know, it's they're taught, Saudi is touted as, I mean, we covered the whole sleeping giant thing that I hate, you know, when people cover. So it's neither sleeping nor is it, it doesn't see itself as a giant. It's always in that progress mode. They want to develop better. How can we imperfect ourselves and our systems? So that's cleared. Now, when we go to the manual, they'll always have an eye towards three layers, the domestic scene, the regional scene, and the global scene. And there are so many different examples that you can think of in which policies were tweaked to cater to those three different layers. And again, to think that it's a one-man show, I mean, this is sexy. It's easy to spill this out. But it's not, it's, it's, there is more nuance. I mean, look at the detour that happened with moving from the rift and its implications with Qatar to then the embrace. No one does this if they don't have a pragmatic outlook. And this is the pragmatism that you need to develop a nation. You can't be stuck to an ideology of the sort or else you're, you're gonna end up in, you know, lost in history like some of our neighbors are, unfortunately. Uh, and here I'm thinking Iran, and hopefully maybe we cover it later, but this is something that they can work on. Now, that's one example from the foreign policy uh, toolkit. Let me give you another example. Remember how they shifted the VAT or they cut off certain subsidies? The subsidies were returned in a year's time during COVID when there was a need. And there is that promise that the 15% would go back down to 5% when the need arises. 
So there is a system in place that looks at the different elements in society. The same thing goes with the women's role. So now we've developed different universities that cater to women and they're pushing them beyond what they're used to. We saw a woman join the space uh, a few weeks ago or a few months ago. So how does this push a certain limit on society's understanding of itself? Taken certain symbolic moves of that sort have a long way to go to push a certain message through. So sometimes these movements are done with an eye to changing societal uh, understandings. And it's hard, let me tell you. I mean, I, I don't know how they do it, and I'm sure there are many hiccups along the way, and things can be better, but it's it's hard to manage change. And it's hard to be in that pressure, whether it's self-imposed or not, it can go either way, of being the leader of the region. Because Saudi, I mean, talk to the enemies or the friends of Saudi Arabia, they'll both concede to that reality. And that reality is not only based on the symbolism of Mecca and Medina, which is, again, a tried, tired metaphor, if you may, but numbers back this up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the biggest economy, the biggest labor force. They are more and more acting that role out. And this is what the region benefits from. Because let me tell you, whenever there's a major initiative, you'll always notice the GCC and the other party. So the Saudis don't go at it alone. They think of the conglomerate as well. Here, I'm thinking, I mean, for example, the latest meeting with the Central Asian nations that was not done with Saudi alone, the GCC was brought in. The China Arab summit that happened, the America uh, Islamic summit that happened during the Trump years and so on. So they're trying to live onto that role. Uh, they have a mission to be part of this world and to try to infect a positive change. Uh, I mean, again, who would have thought Zelensky of Ukraine would be invited to an Arab League meeting along with Bashar al-Assad? Mm -hmm. And that both would attend in the same room. I mean, who does this? Uh, it takes boldness. It takes creativity. It takes trying to uh, please or, or adapt to the different worlds out there. Same thing now with the Ukraine uh, the news, I mean, I don't know if it was confirmed yet or not, but in a few days we have yes. uh, another round of peace talks on Ukraine, which, by the way, the Russians would be more attentive to, given the relationship between Russia and Saudi Arabia, even without their presence. But I think building up to that role will say something about how Saudi now sees itself as, as you know, as part of the globe. It's not only a Middle Eastern power, it's not only a Gulf power but it wants to rise above that to contribute to global society. Lucian, boy, I love listening to you. Only Lucian, we're, we're grateful, actually. We have, you know, thousands of, of subscribers on YouTube and, and, and the same with our podcast and our reach has grown. But way back in the beginning, one of our very first long conversations when i think we what lucian we had six listeners including my mom and, and my golden and my, retriever and my mom yeah and, and noodle your cat and noodle um, my cat yeah <laughs> was exactly this uh the overlooked role of king salman and his unique and pivotal pivotal i mean just extraordinarily pivotal role in saudi history and and what he's done but i agree with you 100 percent. so so you're talking about waves you're talking about you know uh 
but you also acknowledge that, that keeping up with KSA is not only tough for non-Saudis, but Saudis also, because this current wave is trying to deliver results faster than ever before. It's on fire. Let me let me give you an example. <laughs> let, let, let me tell you. Let me tell. Let me give you examples from my visits to Saudi Arabia, and I go there often. I have an extended family. Al Saif crosses over to Saudi Arabia. We are a small branch that migrated to Kuwait. Let me let me tell you. I mean, where can I start? Uh, from the, the 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 smiling faces in the Riyadh airport, the welcoming hospitality that you get hit on hit by once you arrive into the airport, to being picked up by a woman uber driver in riyadh i never had this in the states you know let alone in riyadh and and i converse with her and i'm like are you are you fine doing this is this your job she's like no i have a marketing job daytime but i i do this on the side and i'm like does anyone even bother you she's like no with that new anti-harassment law and with the numbers are registered and everything no one dares to 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 going to uh uh Jeddah and Medina to, to see tour guides, female tour guides trying to explain their city to the world, to people visiting them. To, you know, ex examples are limitless. And these are just things that I'm not, I mean, me as a Gulf citizen, I'm not used to. Uh, I, I mean, we don't see this in Kuwait. I mean, a Starbucks barista who cleans my table before and after and who is also Saudi. I mean, again, I'm saying this is how it should be, by the way. I'm mm -hmm. just saying that this is being normalized as normal action. And that reinforces them being part of this global world order in which people contribute to society. Right. And yeah. this is what you need. Uh, uh, again, many, many examples. But I, I think there is, has always been that rapid change. But what's been happening in the last eight years, it's, it's gone even further. They have, and, and that's the, the beauty of having visions, by the way. Again, Vision 2030 is not the first vision that Saudi Arabia had, nor the region. We've had different visions. It goes back to the days of the five-year plans, if you remember. The whole, you know, Soviet heydays, and, you know, they followed that model. But I think having a target and rallying people around that target and pushing forward with that target, keeping in mind Saudi Arabia first. And let me let me comment on sports because, again, another tired concept is the whole sports washing thing. Let me tell you, they could care less about what people think of them abroad. Saudi Arabia, just like the rest of the Gulf, has a, an obesity and diabetes problem. One way of fixing this is getting people to run to jog, to have role models in the sports industry. How brilliant. And then to reinforce internal tourism and not only internal among Saudis and Gulfies, but about people coming from abroad, you bring in branded names. I mean, it's it's, it's no secret. I mean, that's what people do everywhere, you know, when, when, when clubs pick up certain names in, in other regions. So trying to change the image of a country maybe one of their goals but let me tell you it's far down the list and that's why when i mean the guardian or uh, some other newspaper i forgot the name they had a, a culinary contest and they're like food washing or something like that <laughs> yeah, that's too much and, and you know what it does? it's funny but you know what it does it it makes 
people in Saudi Arabia feel a bit ticked off and 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 distant from others in the West. There is a gulf that's being built, and it's unnecessary. Why should there be such a gulf? Think of Saudis, Gulfies, Kuwaitis, Qataris as normal people. And we are, you know, we have good and bad people. Some policies go well, some don't. Um, there is a certain system in place. I mean, let's not hide our heads behind the bushes. You know, no one denies the absolute monarchy element of this. And they talk about that. But I frankly think that with all these changes, there will be more space for people to express themselves. Uh, and I have an article that's going to come out, by the way, either today or tomorrow, that talks because tomorrow is the anniversary of the invasion of Kuwait. So I have a huge article coming out on how the invasion shaped the Gulf. And I talk about this because Kuwait is known for its open political system. And I think after the liberation in 91, that system found its way across the region in ways that modify are modified to their own state society relations. So, for example, in 91 or 92, you had the first Saudi constitution, the basic law. You had the Shura Council evolve and develop and accommodate mm -hmm. women. You had elections in the municipal council. So there is space that's opening up. But do not expect us to be like the West. That's not the ask. That's not the aspiration. Nor is it frankly needed. Each person and society needs to develop to being their own best and to contributing well to society. How that comes through is the society's conversation amongst itself, as long as the dignity of the citizens is enshrined. And this is how people are moving around in the region here. And that's, I think, where the mismatch is with many coming in from other places and trying to lecture us on how to conduct business. It doesn't work, guys. You know, it, it's not going to happen. So, and the way that people in the region look at it is, in the past, we were colonized or we were occupied. So this is kind of, you know, soft imperialism kind of thing. So let's agree on no one lecturing the other, opening up to each other, respecting one another and disagreeing and saying, we do not think this should be done this way. We suggest this way and vice versa. And I think in that debate will come a long way in developing ourselves and societies. That's a great platform and launching point for the next item in your in your Twitter thread. And as our listeners can tell, this was quite the Twitter thread. It had a lot of a lot of uh, good thoughts in it. So essentially, you say in terms of foreign policy and diplomatic relations, Saudi Arabia has taken note of a concept brought forth most recently by the Europeans early this year: de-risking. And you sort of reference this, and you know, uh, and you know the rapprochement with Qatar, and and obviously the the diplomatic arrangement with Iran. But you know, this is a specific term, de-risking, that you you apply to what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. This is something that I maybe should write more about because it's it's quite vague at the moment. It it you know what caught my attention, uh, Richard, was that it's it started creeping into certain you know we policy wonks, we, we look at statements and we look at Q&As and I'm like, it's been a couple of months and this whole de-risking concept is popping up right and left. White House statements, GSG7 communiques, uh, discussions with China. 
So I did some digging and because, you know, as students of IR, this wasn't something that clearly came up at the time. And it has origins in, in financial institutions. So in accordance to say, for example, the US Treasury or State Department, when they use de-risking, they have a very specific concept and it's basically avoiding risk. So if there is an issue, you drop it. And this is not what I meant. And I, I, I think we should go back to the concept, deconstruct it and understand it. What does the D in de-risking mean and what does risking mean? By de-risking, if I can take a, an act at, at it, is we're not, we're trying to eliminate or reduce the amount of risk. I think that's when you try to apply it into international relations, that's the way to go. And it came as an interesting foil to decoupling. People were tired with decoupling because it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. You can't let go of someone. And, the, and I, you know, what I think of is decoupling comes up when you think of China. U.S. relations. I'm like, how can you decouple from China? The U.S. is its biggest trading partner. It's unrealistic. So let's set ideology apart. Let's think of ways to eliminate risk to further one's interest along the other side. If I win, it doesn't mean the other person has to lose. It's not a zero-sum game. But here, we need to define what elimination is or reducing risk. And even more importantly, what are the parameters of risk? So those need to be in the conversation. So say, for example, when Saudi Arabia and Iran are talking about their relations and how they want to de-risk it in terms of trying to improve it and not get into a zone in which we see rockets on Aramco facilities or uh, Abu Dhabi's airport, those things need to be meted out per bilateral relationship. So the amount of risk that Saudi Arabia defines for itself will be different than Iran. But then that's the conversation to be had. You know, we sit together, we look at what, it meant, what it's meant, and it's an evolving definition. It will change with administrations, it will change with circumstances. But I think keeping it in mind and laying out those rules very clearly will go a long way. And I'm happy that we are changing our vocabulary, to be honest. I mean, moving from decoupling to de-risking is good. And let me tell you something, and I don't say this in the Twitter thread. I think the time is ripe to even move from de-risking to yet another concept. And that's where I think I'll be writing on something that develops, you know, better relations, clarity of purpose, trying to understand one another. And to its credit, and I say this, the U.S. foreign policy establishment is picking up on this. I think the way that the Biden administration is dealing with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf right now, this year, 2023, is way better. Mm -hmm. in the first two years. You can see it in, A, the recurring visits. The more there are visits, the better you understand the other party. We've had, on average, you know, and I keep track, a visitor two every single month since March. Those are good. We finally have a U.S. ambassador in Saudi Arabia after years of absence. Uh, this happened, I think, late last year. So that's also good. We're having more people-to-people -people exchanges, students here and there, uh, the opening of visas in Saudi Arabia is a big achievement. Uh, you should, I mean, if, if you talk to scholars who are non-Gulf uh, citizens who tried to come in in the past, it was a mess. So to their credit, now they're opening up that space. And look, the more exchange with other peoples and nations, the more open you will be. I mean, it's, it, this is something that's, you know, unhidden. It's, it's known. 
So I, I encourage that development and I think it's good. Um, I hope I explained what I meant by de-risking and where we should go from there. Well, it, it it's interesting. And, and on this show, we sort of launched about you know, the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. And, you know, I asked often, you know, when is the U.S. administration going to update its approach to the region? It needs a revamp. It needs an overhaul. You need new paradigms. And slowly but surely, I think the learning curve has, has gone up and they are doing better, which leads us to your next point, which is really interesting. And I'm just going to read it just like you wrote it. The craze over Saudi-Israeli normalization is absurd. <laughs> it should Indeed. not. It should not come first on the U.S. national security checklist when thinking about the Middle East. Now, let me tell you, I wrote this one in June, early June. Yeah. Uh -huh. And now it's early August, and the craze has gone quadruple. Has Cra it? Crazy. That's too much. Come on. I mean, look, I lauded the good elements of U.S. foreign policy. The fixation. I mean, look, America should think of its interests first. And I think, again, as a person who keeps visiting the States, who lived here for many years, the conversation has shifted. Let me tell you, I I don't remember seeing people questioning Israel and the aid to Israel and the policies of Israel the way that it's been done in the past year. So I think that's a healthy exchange, not only on Israel. I mean, look, on any American partner and ally who they think is not aligning with their own interests. I think, you know, it behooves Americans to be more open about that because their interests as a country should come first. So now, capture this with me. America is moving into an election year very soon. Um, the economy should be the first. I mean, again, the economy has always been the determinant of the election. The way that the U.S. has been fixated on the Saudi Arabia, Israel thing, defies the whole national security of America, of Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Look, without Palestinians in the picture, nothing is going to come through. The three years of the Abraham Accords have shown exactly that. So we can't hide them from that picture. That could be on the table. I mean, I'm not privy to those private discussions, but seeing how the far-right government in Israel is acting, seeing, I mean, they can't even get their own foreign minister to visit Bahrain or the UAE. They keep delaying it because <laughs> one of their ministers decides, you know, to go on a stroll in the Temple Mount. And this is really uh, insulting to the, to the feelings of millions and millions of Muslims, not only in the Arab world, but across the Islamic world. So those are the things that need to be discussed. And the asks are high, even if what's reported, you know, from the Saudi end. And look, let me tell you, and I gave, uh, I, I was interviewed yesterday on this specific topic. And what I said was, if anything is to be picked up from this, we should laud Saudi policymaking who enabled the Americans or the administration in particular to move from framing it in a pariah state mode to now courting it relentlessly in the past few months, as if it's a bride waiting for marriage, you know? Yes. So that shift doesn't bode well for the American U.S. foreign policy establishment. They need to think more broadly of what they need, and they need to think of their own goals. To think that that normalization deal will allow them to stop any Chinese-Saudi development in relations or 
to place on the security uh, burden on Israel vis-a-vis -vis Iran, that's too much of an ask. So I know that they're exploring it. And, you know, exploring is not bad in itself because it exposes these positions. But I think they need to put things into perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, again, going back to Saudi's leadership role in 2002 in the Arab League in Beirut, Saudi Arabia presented a revolutionary declaration. And I say this because, you know, it, it, it shocks me that no one took it seriously from, from, from the West or Israel. The API, the Arab Peace Initiative, gave on the table Israel full normalization with 22 Arab states overnight if it grants the occupied lands that it occupied in 1967 back to Palestine with East Jerusalem as its capital. And by East, we're talking about a divided Jerusalem where both states can claim parts of Jerusalem as their own capital. What's the rocket science in all of this? Why aren't they doing this? So, you know, th that just, you know, is, is a shocker to me, even to now. I mean, it only speaks of them trying to push themselves through. The Israelis feel that they're protected by America. And that's where the Americans hopefully reassess their position and push the Israelis further. Yes, uh, I'm with you 100%. Uh, the U.S. needs to focus on its national interests and, and not really carry the water for Israel uh, in this. And, you know, one reason the Arab, you know, Abdullah, but their uh, peace proposal is ignored is because it, it would require Israeli concessions. And, and they seem very intent on trying to get something without giving up anything. And, you know, we can't really be party to that. I, I would say, um, you know, I mentioned early that we like to feature young scholars from the region. Uh, Dr. Abdulaziz Agashayan uh, is, just recently wrote a very good piece on the, the Saudi Arabia and its, its perspective on the normalization discussion in Arab Gulf states in, in Washington. Um, and so we'll be looking forward to any of your comments on this. I'm really curious because you are you're obviously you're deeply immersed and conversant and expert on on Saudi issues, but you're a Kuwaiti. What are perspectives, if you can share that, what are perspectives of, of fellow Gulf citizens of the Gulf of Saudi Arabia, you know, the Kuwaitis, Emiratis? Obviously they're going to be different in each one, but in general. And I, I was struck, I think Lucia and I were both struck, you know, you know, at the at the World Cup in in, in Doha. Um, it really came through the affinity and the support of regional actors for other regional actors. You know, everyone got behind the Saudi team, everyone got behind uh, you know, regional teams. And they were happy to do it because there was a real affinity and, and support, even though there might be tensions and, and policy disputes and that sort of thing. But what is what is the perspective of Saudi Arabia in the region? Let me tell you, uh, relations between the different Gulf states predate the Gulf Cooperation Council, which was established in 81. Ties, you know, we have ties of blood, kinship, language, customs, religion, uh, common history. Uh, there is so much that's shared that cannot just be ignored. And to reinforce all of this, Richard, uh, we have uh, families across the region that are tied to one another because of the migrations that took place. I'm a living example. I mean, El Saif, is, uh, there is a small branch in Kuwait, but the larger family resides in Kuwait. I can think of the same between Saudi and Bahrain. 
Saudi and Qatar, and so on. So people always look at us and look, oh, they're disputing again, they're going into a rift. That's normal. I think it's healthy. You know, when you, when you have a disagreement, it needs to be out there. Um, sometimes the framing is too accelerated for people to digest it. But I think, look, this is the name of the game. So either pick up the way we do things or, you know, you'll be lost in translation. It's normal for, for, for differences to arise. It's normal for disruptions to happen. It's normal to go back to the fold. And again, I'm thinking now today, I mean, the latest is when people talk about the UAE-Saudi dispute. And they frame it in ways in which they're going to go and kill one another. That's not going to happen. Come on. <laughs> you know, it's there are shared interests and there are differences on various files. I mean, the UAE normalized, Saudi didn't. The UAE and Saudi have different visions of Yemen. Uh, they have different visions of OPEC. But that doesn't dissuade them for working on mitigating those differences or managing them. And I think that's how we operate. Uh, Saudi, I mean, the, the label that comes across and that pops in mind, given its stature, is always seen as a big brother across the Gulf. And if you look at the archives, they're quite telling. Uh, the exchanges that happen between the different leaders and the, the British, and I'm thinking the British archives there, you'll see that that image comes across. It, it's an old established image. And they are living up to that image. I mean, again, who brings in all uh, the Gulf states together to meet up with the Chinese or with the Central Asians or now leading through with the Arab League for this year? It's a rotation, as you know. So that's something that we need to work further on. We need to develop that Gulfiness, if you may. We need to think out loud of what makes a responsible Khaliji citizen and how that Khaliji citizen can rise up and contribute to the whole of the Gulf. We are still stuck in our bounded states uh, somehow. And I think the transnational needs to also be balanced off with the national. And there is merit to such an approach, such a mixed approach. We have done a lot through the GCC, let me tell you. The United uh, Customs Union, um, the Shared Peninsula, a military force, um, the way, again, since it's August 2nd tomorrow, so it's the 33rd anniversary of the invasion of Iraq to Kuwait. I mean, the way that they, the solidarity that translated when a crisis came through, those are things that we want to develop further. And don't forget, the, the Arab Gulf is leading the Arab world today. This has not happened in, in recent Arab history. This has been the the results of a lot of work some people say oh yeah because egypt and iraq and syria the usual you know traditional leaders of the region are mired in wars and problems yes that's part of it but look if you look at the numbers again we're the biggest contributors to the economy we have the best ranked universities we have the biggest and best publishing houses so there is more than just oil it's what's been used, how oil has been used to invest back in the people of the region. I think that's the story, and that's how the countries of the region want to move forward. Each has his own formula, understandably, but then how can we align those formulas to achieve a stature for the Gulf that goes beyond the Middle East? 
We have the Al-Safes in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Now there's an Al-Safe in the Jordanian royal family as well. Um, <laughs> Dr. Badr Al-Safe, founding president at Al-Safe Consulting, assistant professor at Kuwait University. Too long to read your whole CV here and the readout, uh, Dr. Badr, but this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much uh, for your time and valuable insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you. That was our conversation with Badr Al-Safe. Just excellent and Really a lot of fun to discuss everything with him. He was just very sharp gentleman and uh, hope you all enjoyed that. Yeah, that was awesome. I loved it because you go for one thing and you get that and a whole lot more with, with someone and Butter is, uh, you know, obviously has a comprehensive view of the world, not only just in his area of expertise. So that was a blast. And yep. he and will be back. Since we had Butter that conversation safe, with him, him, Richard, he's been- quoted in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and pretty much everywhere. So, and that's that's oh. part of the course for him, but uh, just very cool. Richard, let's get to Yella. What do you think? Yella. Yeah. Yella. Saudi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. Number one, Yella. China is said to be in support of a third round of talks to find a framework for peace in Ukraine after a meeting of senior officials from about 40 countries in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. The two-day summit in Jeddah was a second of its kind after a similar forum in Copenhagen earlier this summer and aims to draft key principles on how to end Russia's war in Ukraine. Ukraine's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, said he hoped the initiative would lead to a, quote, peace summit, unquote, of the world leaders this autumn to endorse the principles based on his own 10 interesting for a we talked last week and when we did a one big thing on this subject i was wondering out loud why saudi arabia was doing this and what was going on here and i think we sort of have the answer and that is one that saudi arabia is in the position to solve this problem kind of at the middle of the two things the kingdom has touted its ties to both sides in the war obviously is positioned um with russia in the oil markets to i mean they have regular relationships uh, relations and conversation with russia and then you know is fairly tight with the west so you have that being a peace broker also presents riyadh with a chance to repair ties with the west because it's helping out so yeah i mean and that and i just wanted to add this the spa said the talk showed the kingdom's quote readiness to exert its good offices to contribute to reaching a solution that will result in permanent peace so there is a lot in this for Saudi Arabia just to be out front and center with maybe solving one of the most complex and frustrating challenges uh, for the West anyway in, in the Ukraine war. Yeah, I mean, global summits, Copenhagen, Jeddah, wherever the next one's going to be, you know, it, it's in that discussion. And, and they also did a good turn because they had, you know, China was at this one. They weren't the one at Copenhagen. Um, you know, you had Brazil, India, South Africa, four, 40 countries. So it, yeah, they do can play a role. And, and again, this just lends credence to their ongoing campaign to be seen as a, a useful, responsible middle power that can uh, convene at an extremely highly high level and can, can, can do it effectively. I mean, it's a, it's a big win for whatever, if nothing happened. Uh, and they got these people here to talk about Zelensky's 10-point plan. 
it's a win. And apparently they, you know, they had some good discussions, nothing substantive came out of it, but I don't think that was expected. It's, you know, they're looking to the autumn. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a nice diplomatic. Uh, and I think uh, that Ukraine plus, plus knows that their 10 point peace plan is not going to, if, if Russia didn't agree to that, you know, when it was announced in December of last year, it's not going to agree to it now unless Ukraine really makes gains on the, on the front. It, it's making some gains that those are going slowly, but I think, most in the West would look at that 10 point peace plan and basically see it as how things were before the invasion. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's unrealistic for them to ask, but I think that whatever, if, if this leads to an ultimate deal with Russia, there's going to be some on that 10 point plan that maybe Russia doesn't want to agree to, but, and we discussed this last week, Richard, that, that war is truly horrible. And, you know, It is horrible, but if you and this is I don't want to be flip about this, but if you're in Ukraine and you've been invaded and Russia has uh, committed war crime after war crime, has bombed civilian populations, has behaved as Russia does in in any kind of uh, on any kind of battlefield, um, you could care less about a peace plan. I mean, you, you know, you 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 were you want to drive Russia out of the southern Ukraine, you want to drive them out of Crimea. Sure. Yeah. Um, and but it looks good to have a ten-point peace plan, you know. So let's they put that out there. So yeah. but you know, you know, in their heart of hearts, they you know, and the yeah, and the problem is you're going to get you know you're going to have to pry southern Ukraine and Crimea in particular out of Russia's cold dead hands. So this is going to yeah just get ugly. Horrible. I'm afraid. Richard Yella, number two. The long-awaited operation to resolve the issue of aging of the aging tanker SFO Safar currently decaying off the coast of Yemen is set to end in the coming days with over 96% of the ship's oil cargo transferred to a replacement tanker, the Yemeni government said on Wednesday, moored off the western Yemeni city of Hodaida, Hodaida. The four-decade-old tanker has attracted international attention over the past few years after images revealed water seeping into the vessel as corrosion ate away at its hull. Critics, including some Yemeni government officials, argue that the UN is effectively setting another time bomb in the Red Sea by allowing the newly loaded oil tanker to moor in the area next to the deteriorating Safar until the government and the Houthis agree on who will receive the proceeds from the oil sales. <laughs> It you know, really does. Not, <laughs> still, I'm sorry to laugh. Is that not captured in modern funny, world? But it's also it's well said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, I mean, we put this in there because we've we've covered the episode suffer safer, um, and you know we know it's an ecological time bomb, and and you know, but but Saudi Arabia, the UN, you know, campaigning around the world to raise money to to um, you know remedy this. And they, you know, and they go to great ends, and they finally do it, and somebody's got something to complain about. And somebody's the fighting over fight, is around you know, fight over course, about. I money. Mean, it's just endless. So, um, Richard Hodaida, and yes. I think Hodaida. It's the type of thing. It's the type of thing you read all the time. Hodaida. You read that, once a week because you never really oh, say Hodaida. it out loud. You're like, is it? How does that? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Hodaida. Um, yeah, this this is the also the type of story <laughs> that 
will not even be a, really a footnote in history if it gets resolved. No one is going to thank anybody. No one's going to talk about it or remember it. But if they don't figure it out, it's going to be something that everyone right. knows about. It's going to be this tragic, avoidable problem. It really does uh, encapsulate just so much about the world today, <laughs> sadly. Oh, yeah. Yellen, number three, after pumping tens of billions of dollars into high-profile global investments, a $700 billion public investment fund is accelerating spending at home, often on obscure startups and projects that it plans to own and operate. Last month, PIF said it would start selling milk from camels and dates grown in the region around the holy city of Medina. Before that, it launched a halal meats exporter and a company aiming to make Saudi coffee globally popular. The Saudi government wants PIF to help jumpstart their traditionally risk-averse private sector and improve corporate governance. To boost private participation in PIF projects, the fund created a national development division headed by our friend, former McKinsey consultant Jerry Todd. The state is also spending tens of billions of dollars. Hard to, to imagine anyone better than Jerry for this position, right? You're right, Richard. He's a, he's a friend. Um, have had dinner with him and his friends and met with him many times. He's just so smart and he just totally gets it. And the reason why I think this is uh, an interesting piece that you included in this, Richard, is because he was quoted in a piece in Arabian Golf Business Insight about the PIF being wary of crowding out the private sector, which just mm -hmm. shows how aware he is of the challenge of trying to get private sector involvement in things using, I mean, he's he works the PIF, but also not overdoing it such that it crowds everybody out and they can't get involved in the business world. And, you know, here's a, just a quote from it. It's of concern to everyone. And it's something we talk about a lot. He said, adding that the PIF always analyzes the wider impact of any proposals. Quote, we look at how much job creation the investment represents in GDP growth, but also what role it's playing in the ecosystem. How is it doing something additional? How is it doing something that, it, that is going to have an impact beyond what the private sector would do? Success, he said, is having an ecosystem that doesn't require capital anymore, grows on its own. Getting to the point where in any sector you can just be a passive shareholder, I think, is the ultimate goal. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff. It is good. And, and I was actually going to do my one big thing this week on this. And when I started getting into it, I said, this is too stinking big. PIF is just... It's just too complex, and what they're doing is is, is is not only you know mammoth in size and you know ginormous in aspiration, but takes tremendous subtlety and nuance. Just what Barry is talking about is how do we make a difference? How do we jumpstart that without completely distorting the market? It's a it's an extraordinarily challenging thing, and I don't know. One of the things I'd love to get as an expert on you tell me if there's anybody who's done this before. I mean, people refer to Tomasek, uh, the Singapore sort of wealth fund that uh, you know, invested heavily globally back in the 70s and 80s and, and you know, jump-started that economy. But, um, and there are others in the region that invest domestically. But um, you know, there's a, there's a PIF increasingly is occupying a universe of its very own because it's just so active in so many fronts. And just to add to this, in, in this article, it's a good article, by the way, um, in the past five years, PIF has established 84 companies uh, helped create half a million jobs. It's focusing on 13 sectors. It considers strategic. These include aerospace, defense, healthcare, entertainment, leisure, and sports. 
Um, it's signed contracts with private companies worth fifty billion in twenty twenty two. Private companies and five billion out of Neom alone. So it, you you can see it. It takes the lead on any number of sectors. It takes the lead on any number of things. And um, you know, it's it it. it I think it, the intent is to to IPO or privatize its way out of these uh, investments. Uh, but that's going to take time. Uh, but you can see in any number of sectors, tourism is the just the marquee one. Where, if not for and if not for PIF, very aggressive investment in and in, in pushing forward and taking point, it wouldn't be nearly well as said long and as it is. Completely agreed, Richard. Uh, Yella, is this me? This is me. Okay, I'm not really on my. A game today, Richard. Yeah. I apologize. Yes, it is. Yep. U.S. oil production this year will rise faster this than is the US oil expected, production, according right? to a new government forecast. Yeah. Higher than expected well productivity and rising crude prices will help boost U.S. production to a record 12.8 million barrels a day by 2023, up from a previous forecast of 12.6 million, according to a monthly report from the U.S. EIA, which was released Tuesday. The U.S. averaged about 11.9 million barrels a day in 2022. Production in both the U.S. and globally is forecasted to increase further next year. World output will grow to 103 million barrels a day in 2024, up 1.7 million barrels per day from this year, the EIA said. Over 70% of that growth is expected to come from non-OPEC countries led by the U.S., Brazil, Canada, Guyana, and Norway. U.S. output will climb to 13.1 million barrels a day next year, the agency said. And this was a factoid. I don't, I don't have much to add. I mean, it, it's taken a long while for shale, U.S. shale to sort of uh, get back to where it was pre-pandemic. Um, and we're here now. And obviously, they, you know, the as we know, I mean, a lot, you know, the production didn't scale up like we thought it would because because investors wanted to make uh, wanted some of their money back and get dividends rather than capital investment. Um, but I guess it's all leveling out, and you know, it, it, it's interesting in the market. We've talked about that we're not oil experts and how difficult it would be to forecast this market. You know, the, what the Saudis are looking at um, because that was you know that was sort of their. Um, you know, their downfall in 2014, 2015, you know, was the rise of shale. Um, and here comes shale again into a market that Saudi Arabia is trying to support from the bottom. Very interesting. So it, it, this will be interesting. Um, Yellen number five, IMG has locked a series of international broadcast deals for the Saudi Pro League's 23-24 season. The confirmed deal span over 130 territories, including what has been described as a, quote, landmark deal, unquote, with Dazen, D-A-Z-N, in multiple territories, Austria, Belgium, Canada, Germany, and the UK, as well as Sport TV, Portugal, La 7, Italy, Marca.com, Spain, and Canal Plus, France. Those are all big. Starting from this season, IMG will also produce a live world feed, including graphics and English commentary. The announcement for the deal came just days ahead of the kickoff of the 23-24 season on Friday, tomorrow, August 11th, which will feature 18 clubs and run until May 2024. Canal Plus will air two matches a week, while highlights will also be featured in its wider sports groups 
programs such as Canal Football Club. And my only question about this, IMG being a U.S. firm, there is no televising What's up with that? Because we have only 12 hours left until this league starts. We've been talking about this for, uh, Uh well, it's really been the focus. We've really put it in focus. Ronaldo kind of kicked everything off, but... When the PI started investing in, in teams, and Richard, you did a one big thing on this, a f- maybe it was about two months ago, that did really well. And everyone was like, this was awesome. This really put everything together. And now I'm ready to watch some darned Saudi football. And how am I supposed to football. do that? <laughs> like some bootleg feed? <laughs> we, don't, we don't get Canal Plus I hear in you. rural I hear Maryland. You. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, uh, and and also if 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 you know if IMG is you sort of basically uh, you know packaging the product, making it pretty, and putting it in English. I mean, you've got English, you know, you got died. Right, so, but you know, and it goes to Austria, Belgium, Canada, Germany, UK, Spain, France, Portugal, Italy. I mean, uh, I, I guess that works there too. But for most most part, but yeah, that, uh, I hope another I hope question I have North American audience. So the Saudi Pro League begins Friday, August 11th. By the time you listen to this, it will be today. But it's currently 100 degrees right. Fahrenheit in Riyadh right now at about 10 p.m., maybe 9.30 p.m. on the 10th. We record this, and it takes some time to edit. So it's still Thursday where we're recording this. Are they playing these games? They're obviously playing them at night, yeah. but they're playing them in 100-degree weather, no problem. Right. Yeah, actually, that was one of the biggest adjustments Ronaldo said. So they must lose like 15 pounds of water during the matches at the beginning of the season. Because in the winter, it's really nice. Kind of an attractive, uh, yeah, it's an attractive climate for it. But um, interesting stuff. So congrats to the Saudi Pro League executives on a very eventful and fruitful offseason of transfers. It should be interesting to see. I mean, it, to see how many people watch this and to see what Holy the viewership macro. is like, if they can attract the viewership and sell ads. If, if these, if IMG and these other TV channels can be profitable with ad sales, it's going to be interesting. People are fans of these, some of these players. So, Well, I love it because it's an ongoing thing. We will revisit it for sure. And I also know without a doubt that one of our favorite listeners yes. and good friends is delighted That's that true. we talk about and we, football and thank you golf. for mentioning golf we will not be discussing golf but we do have the streak going and now that's all we're going to say about it there isn't <laughs> anything else to say other than the fact that this was supposed to be the night <laughs> today was supposed to be the 966 official uh what are we, we going to call it richard an invitational uh, pro uh, annual. Know. We got to come up with a name for uh, <laughs> Shankfest. We know. were going to no. play golf today, um, and Shankfest a, <laughs> uh, house turned into a bioweapons lab slash near hurricane that canceled flights. We're pushing it to next week, but if you're if you're interested, we can discuss some of the results from that. Yeah. But uh, we should we should we have our annual golf outing, and uh, we, it was canceled today. <laughs> well, I think actually, actually. <laughs> I'm bringing along an NDA for both of us because there will be no, there will be no that, whispers, that, no long lens shots of us. This is not Trump. 
um, on a golf course. And, you know, this is, you know, and we can call it the annual 966 Shank Fest or whatever we can. I call agree. It. But it and will if be, we film enough you know, whatever of each it is, other, Richard, it's gonna there be might be a good shot from each of us in it. Um, <clears throat> I, have a, I have a good, good buddy of mine that I play with every time we're like, you know, you know, under a tree, you know, 28 feet into the woods, you know, hitting over a log <laughs> and, and off a rock, you know, one of us comes over. Usually and it's just the ball hitting a tree and going straight back, but occasionally get you get an amazing rescue shot on film. You get the art of it, which is good. Okay. Enough golf it there. Um, <laughs> Rich, uh, this is number six. Uh, they flew by again, I guess. Um, you know, we're really whipping through them, but Yellow number six, more than 3,000 Marines and sailors arrived in the Middle yeah. East on Sunday in a deployment meant to deter Iran from seizing and harassing merchant ships near the Strait of Hormuz, according to U.S. Naval Forces Central Command. They come aboard the dock landing ship USS Carter Hall and amphibious assault ship USS Bataan, which together can carry dozens of aircraft, including Ospreys and Harrier jets, plus amphibious landing craft and tactical vehicles. These forces belong to the Bataan Amphibious Ready Group and the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, MEU. The North Carolina-based MEU is, quote, capable of conducting amphibious missions, crisis response, and limited contingency operations to include the enabling, to include enabling the introduction of follow-on forces and designated special operations, according to a release from Naval Forces Central Command. Get some. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so we put we put this in nicely done. We put this in just uh, we alluded to it, and you're one big thing, or my one big thing. I don't know. Um, you know, this is something the U.S. can do, and nobody else can, and we've been doing it for decades. You know, securing safe passage on key key bodies of water, and uh, you know, um, areas of transit. So. <clears throat> You know, the Fifth Fleet, I mean, I mean, their their area of operations includes 21 countries, the Arabian Gulf, Gulf of Oman, Red Sea, parts of the Indian Ocean, and, and, and you know, the Strait of Hormuz, Bab al-Mandab, and Suez Canal. I mean, and, and for whatever reason, Iran has been quite feisty of late, you know, interdicting t uh, ships and sort of, uh, you know, poking, poking at, you know, at, UAE on islands, poking at Saudi and Kuwait on the Dura gas field. So, uh, you know, this is something we can do. And I think it's important to note because um, our friend Bilal Saab would never forgive us if we didn't, that uh, something that the that the CENCOM is doing uh, is this Task Force 59, which was launched in September 2021. And it's uh, it's essentially put out now close to 100 unmanned systems that are all over the Gulf, you know, tracking behavior and movement and, and anything. And, you know, it's involved uh, 10 uh, allied countries, friendly countries. And um, it's really, you know, they're putting sail drones out and, and this sort of thing. And it's really been quite successful and not only because of the hardware, because of the, but the software that's involved with it sort of generating what they call a mesh network of these AI-enabled unmanned surface vehicles. So so anyway, yeah, we, we're putting out, you know, we've sent 3,000 men there, but also we're already working to try and manage the situation, get ahead of situations, be alert to things that can, you know, forewarned is forearmed. 
uh, and we're doing it in coordination with our allies in the region. So, you know, again, these are creative ways to sort of manifest the the value of U.S. Uh, military. I would hate to be on the business end it's of nice the Batan Amphibious Ready Group or the 26 Marine Expeditionary Unit. That does not sound very pleasant. I don't have a crystal ball in front of me, but a very safe bet might be that some of Iran's provocations might settle down after this takes effect because there's a disagreement on what type of provocations have been happening. The U.S. Navy and the U.S. Um, the United States Defense Forces are saying these are direct provocations. They're firing shots at some of these merchant ships. And Iran is saying they're responding to distress calls. Well, we're going to find out who's right here because the U.S. Navy is going to be there. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, it's like it's like it's like everything in life. It's a matter of timing. So, you know, they fire a shot. Mm-hmm. A distress call was sent. They respond. So, you know, I guess it's again, it's like it's like the, you know, Saudi Israeli normalization. Yeah. Every, you know, whatever. This is you, also you have, interesting it's, it's, in terms of the timing. Accurate. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, <laughs> but we've got a lot of there's an uptick on in U.S. Saudi relations. They've got a genuine effort from the Biden administration to improve relations with not just Saudi Arabia, but the UAE as well. You got this Israeli deal we were talking about. It doesn't hurt to have a little bit of muscle flexing in the but from the U.S. in the region to say, hey, one thing we provide, by the way, is an exceptional military Absolutely. presence that can safeguard transportation for merchant <clears throat> ships. So, yeah, yeah, and and you know, you know, it, it, you know, we can't buy billions and billions of oil from you, you know, like China and and another thing that China to, but, <clears throat> might you know they can't be able this. to do, but definitely will not do is this. They are anti involvement and from a military standpoint all around the world for the most part it's a very general statement but they're not making an offer like this to come in and with one of their trading partners yeah and and and, yeah. and by the way that's again that's that's good policy because we do it we'll let us let us foot the bill yeah let us foot the bill they for, do freeload on that why wouldn't they um but everybody does yeah <laughs> Everybody does. So, I mean, it gives us, but, you know, it also gives, if we can, you know, but, but we benefit. Now, nobody benefits more than, than, than the United States from free and fair trade. And, and so, I mean, that's, that's the whole proposition. Let's secure and make it possible. But, you know, uh, I, we, we have to be, we have to be encouraged. You know, this is the last yellow and, and we don't need to go on to it. But, you know, if we look at, we, we look at U.S.-Saudi relationship what was being discussed the temper the tenor of the of the relationship we're just in a better place right now it's improving and there are positive things to talk about there are positive things to cooperate on and i think certainly the u.s absolutely is, is upgrading it's good luck to the game. boys from the baton amphibious ready group men and women um is serving our our great nation good luck Richard, to the boys. this was wonderful for any of those of you who had right. just heard a previous Yella and are wondering if we will be doing a live 966 in person instead of our normal setup. That is not going to happen because we lack the technical capability of it, but it would be fun to do one of these on the golf course in between shots, sort of like maybe a live YouTube channel, but uh, maybe next year. Wow, that would. Um, <laughs> that would. Yeah, exactly. 
And it would be fun to, you know, have a, have us, yes. the, and you know, the conversation could start as we could drove be up to turn it into a little invitational tournament for any guests that appeared on the 966 and have a little prize raffle for our ardent listeners to join us. We'll match them with a foursome. We've got Dave DeRoche, Richard. Oh, that would be um, cool. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, we did have fun with him at the I'd, Live Golf I'd like to golf with you, Dave. Um, in June, I think that was. What a, what a guy he is. Um, would be super fun to golf with. So anyway, yeah. uh, Richard, thank you very much. Good one. Thank you, man. Love it. You're the best.